This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now, Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but you'll be glad to have met. Harris Rosen is the grandson of immigrants. Harry Rosenowski from Belarus, Russia, came here by himself in the early 1900s. Things were not going well in Russia at all for Jewish people. About the same time, the gentleman named Rosenhaus, he also came alone. There was a tremendous exodus. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people left for America. So Rosenowski and Rosenhaus went through the process. Rosenowski's name was shortened to Rosen. Rosenhaus's name was shortened to Rosen. And so now we have two new Rosens in America. My mom was born here in America. Her dad was Rosenhaus. My dad was born here. His dad was Rosenowski. They met in high school and fell in love and got married. Growing up on New York City's Lower East Side was really quite an experience. Italian families, Irish families, and mostly Jewish families, all living together in not very nice accommodations. I don't think my brother and I perceived the neighborhood as anything significantly different than a, a normal neighborhood. So one day, we see a sightseeing bus. Why would anyone want to go to the Third Avenue L and a couple of ladies stepped down and looked around and said, so this is how they live. So this is how they live. And my brother and I looked at each other. What's so different? Isn't this the way people live? And so we were a bit confused. And when we walked home, we explained to mom what had happened. And she said, not everyone lives near over 100,000 homeless people. Not everyone lives the way you guys live. Some people live in homes. Some people live where there are trees and grass. I think that was the first time Ron and I heard that where we were living was different. I mean, you, you, you just live there and you're comfortable there and you're playing all kinds of games and, and having fun and don't think about those things. And therefore, this thing called poverty didn't get in Harris's way. A decade later, he needed a job, so he knocked on the office door of the hotel where his dad worked, the Waldorf Astoria. I had no idea if they had any, and the personnel director said to me, Harris, you've got four years at Cornell, you've got three years and three months as an officer overseas, we don't have anything for you. 
And I said, I don't care what job you have, I'll take it. She said, what do you mean? I said, anything. Whatever it is you'd like me to do, it's a start. She said, well, if that's the way you feel, I have a job opening right here. I said, what is it? She says, this is a file clerk. Whenever there is a job opening, you have to prepare all of the paperwork and make sure that everyone is aware of that opening so that we can find someone who is qualified for it. I said, that sounds great. She said, are you sure? I said, I'm sure. I didn't stay there very long because, wow, that was the best thing you've ever done, Rosen. Every single job opening you now have first dibs at. So within a very short period of time, maybe a month, there was a job opening on the fourth floor where all of the small breakout rooms were as a setup guy. So we would work together to set rooms up. If they needed a conference table, we'd do that. Chairs around the conference table, so whatever they wanted. I said, I want to get near sales. She said, okay, you got the job. 99.99% of the folks were Hispanic and it was good. I learned a little Spanish, not necessarily vocabulary that was appropriate. And one day I'm in one of the conference rooms and a short fellow, nicely dressed, says, are you one of the guys working? I said, yes, sir. He said, really? I said, yes, yes, sir, why? Well, I mean, you just look a little bit different. I said, yeah, but I'm enjoying the work. He says, well, tell me a little bit about yourself, and I did. And you just came from the military, you were an officer, and you went to Cornell University, and you're working with these guys? I said, that's perfectly fine. He said, do you have any interest in sales? And I said, that's my dream. He said, Harris, are you kidding? I said, no, that's my dream. And I'm right next to you guys. We're on the fourth floor. He said, I'll tell you what, Harris, my name is Xavier Lividini, and I'm the director of sales. The next opening we have, you're in. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. The beginning to owning 6% of all of Orlando's hotel rooms and giving tens of millions away. It's a start, and that's the kind of attitude that you can have and accomplish almost anything in this country. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, an American dreamer story, if ever there is one, and if ever we've done one. Harris Rosen's story continues here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and with Harris Rosen's stories. His Rosen Hotels and Resorts has eight properties in Orlando, but he started out as a physical laborer and made his way to the Walt Disney Company. I hadn't received a pay increase since I was hired, so probably in around five years, and was waiting for my boss or someone else to have a conversation with me. And one day they called and said that not my boss, but my boss's boss wanted to chat with me. I was so happy. I was so happy. I thought, wow, finally. I was probably making about $15,000 a year. And I was wondering, would I get up to 20? Bob Allen sat down. He said, Harris, you've really done a nice job. Oh, I was so happy. Wow. And then the word, but. But we, we don't believe you will ever be a successful Disney executive. What a shock that was. I didn't know how to respond, but I do on occasions slip back to my Lower East Side personality. And calling people by their first name was very common at Disney. I said, Bob, you said I'll never become a Disney executive. Is it because my ears are too small? He said, Harris, that's the kind of bull we're talking about. You don't respect the mouse. So I was fired. It was a terrible, terrible time. Fired for not respecting a rodent, and not even a real one, a make-believe one, which is really embarrassing. In the early 70s, there was an oil embargo. Imagine how disruptive that was here in Orlando. People couldn't buy gas. They couldn't come to Orlando. Buses, tour buses would come, but not cars. I don't think there was a hotel that was running at more than a 40% occupancy. Well, that was really the third job I'd been fired from. And I said, no more. You've got to do something yourself. So look for a little motel to buy. And one day I drove in here. Now, the original motel was 256 rooms. We're now 728. So on June 14, 1974, after meeting with the owner and having him share with me in a very emotional way, he needed to get out of this property because he hadn't seen his wife and three little girls in weeks. He couldn't afford a general manager, couldn't afford a salesperson, didn't know anything about the business. He was a real estate guy, and he bought the little motel as an investment. He was so happy to see me, he hugged me and took a couple of weeks, invited me back to the hotel. And then he asked me how much money I had in the bank. And that was weird. I, I couldn't imagine why 
he would ask that question. And I said, do I tell him? Or I said, tell him. I said, I have $20,000 in the bank. And he extended his hand. I shook it. He said, you give us the $20,000, you assume the mortgage, which is about two and a half million dollars, and it's your property. I shook his hand. I didn't even know what assuming a mortgage was. So on June 24, 1974, I walked into my office and I cried. I gave away everything I had. And I spoke to my attorney and he said, Harris, do you know what assuming a mortgage is? I said, not really. He said, that means you have to pay probably close to $250,000 every year or you lose the hotel. I said, where am, where am I going to get the 250000 He said, you work your ass off and make a profit. I said, oh my God, no way that I was able to make two fifty unless I made some really drastic changes. So I moved in here. I was the general manager. I didn't have any assistant general managers. I did the breakfast cooking. I did all of the carving at night. I was the gardener. I was the head of security. I was the food and beverage manager. I was the director of sales. All of those jobs totaled over $200,000. All I had to do then was make another $50,000 to pay the mortgage. How was I gonna get any occupancy? motor coach. I hitchhiked to New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, spoke to the top motor coach guys who were so, so kind. They heard what I had done. They heard that I hitchhiked. They all found a place for me to sleep while I was there. They took me to my next motor coach company. It was from New York to New Jersey, New Jersey. What I did for them I had some business cards made and I gave them my business card and I said, whatever room rate you think is fair, whatever you want to do, whatever rate, write it down. I'll guarantee it for two years. When I get back to Orlando, I'll send you a formal letter guaranteeing the rate. He said, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. So I booked a bunch of motor coach companies. I can remember some of them. I booked Liberty, Google, in New York. I booked Domenico in New Jersey. Paragon and Crimson in Massachusetts. When I was in Massachusetts, the Pendler family, Paragon Tours, how are you getting home? I guess I'll pitch you. No, no, no. We'll find someone who's heading to Florida and they'll, they'll drop you off at the hotel. And they did and the buses started rolling in. We are one of the few hotel companies, I guess, that is completely debt-free. I'm around 10, 11 years old. My two Zadies, grandpas, came over, and sitting on either side, thick Eastern European accents. They said, boy, chick, you're going to be very successful. You have something very special in your genes. I didn't know what they were talking about. But 
listen to you these days. Don't ever borrow money. They lost everything during the Depression, 1929. They were both very entrepreneurial. Samuel was making barrels. He had his own little barrel company. Harry had a beautiful little restaurant on Hester Street. But they started buying little apartment complexes. And after the Depression, many people were not able to pay their rent. They didn't want to have families leave. So they paid the rent until they ran out of money and they were foreclosed. So here's the funny part. I go to bed at night. My brother and I had a tiny little bedroom. And mom always tucked us in. And she's tucking me in and she says, Harris, why don't you have your PJs on? She said, why are you wearing your jeans? I said, because my two Zadies said I had something special in my jeans. She said, no, different, different kinds of jeans. She tried to explain to me what, what they meant. What would it not be absolutely incredible if my two Zadies would come down for a visit and see what their little grandson has done. They started it all by leaving their families. June 14, 1974. Well, that was his birthday. And he assumed a $2.5 million mortgage, forking over the only $20,000 he had. I didn't know what a mortgage was, let alone what assuming one was. And by the way, we also learned the power of speaking words over children, and especially beautiful ones. When we continue Harris Rosen's story here on Our American Stories, and by the way, go to rosenhotels.com to book your next stay when you're in Orlando and share this story with your kids. continue with our American stories in the final portion of Harris Rosen's remarkable life story. And one day, he's in his office dreaming of building his next resort, and he heard the voice of the Holy Spirit tell him, Harris, it's time to start giving. And so, Harris got to work. Sitting in these two chairs about 28 years ago, I had two individuals, Sarah Sprinkle and Bill Spoon. Bill was the principal of Dr. Phillips High School. Sarah was an early childhood expert. I said, I want to help youngsters, education, scholarships, but I want want something different, something that might be more creative and productive. Sarah said, I have an idea. 
Why don't you offer preschool education? Start the kids when they're two. That's an advantage that they will retain forever. And then what? And then Bill says, let's mentor them through high school. Let's work with their parents. Let's have a guide that's working with them. And if they want to go on to college, you provide a scholarship. If they want to go to trade school, you'll provide a scholarship or community college. And what if we combine those two endeavors into one program? Sarah said it's a great idea. Bill said it's a great idea. I said, I love it. I have to find a neighborhood. Rather than do something bigger, like focusing on a city, state, or country, and have a smaller impact on each person, Harris decided to do something smaller, just focusing on one single neighborhood of 3,000 people and have a bigger impact on each person. And the whole neighborhood that he adopted is called Tangelo Park. This poor neighborhood is in complete disarray. Drugs, prostitution, alcohol, kids aren't going to high school. High school graduation rates were horrible. It was probably in the low 40s. I think sometimes high schools were just really more anxious to say goodbye to the kids and they just gave them a diploma. Virtually none of the kids were going to college. It's a mess. And the neighborhood is so disgusted, they want to take the neighborhood back. So here we are, 28 years later, High school graduation rates 100%. Crime in the neighborhood down 78%. I don't know how many kids we've sent to college, hundreds and hundreds of kids to college. College graduation rates in four years went to 78%. I think nationwide, they're probably around 35% in six years. Of course, real estate values from 40,000 to 150 to 200,000 didn't want any publicity, didn't want any data. I, I didn't want people to think that I was just pounding my chest. The sheriff came to me about four or five years ago and said, Harris, you've created an oasis in Tangela Park. There's less crime there than there is in some of this fancy schmancy gated communities. Wow. Keep it up. So, UCF said, Harris, why are you keeping this a secret? You've got to let people know about it. So it must have been about 10, maybe 15 years ago that UCF started putting some data together. I, I don't really get very involved in all of that stuff. But it's important because as someone in business, I understand when I'm approached by a business person and the question is, Harris, if you've invested X in this new philanthropic program, what kind of return is there? And I, I, that's a very valid question. I said, I don't know. He said, be helpful if you found an answer. So I, I guess we've spent a little over $12 million so far. And Lance Lochner at University of Chicago, he said the return on investment is seven to one. So if you invested 12 
society gets back 84. How? Well, these kids are going to college. They're working. They're paying taxes. Crime is down. And so he said, I've added all of that together, and this is the return on investment. Generally speaking, Lance said, if it's a government program, or kind of a pseudo-government program, there's not much return. If it's one for one, it's good. Often, it's you get a half buck back for every dollar you spend. Rarely is there a positive return. Seven to one is unheard of. I, 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 the, the government is really not capable of, of doing things very efficiently. So, you mentioned the government. Duncan, Arne Duncan, former Commissioner of Education. He's here in Orlando. Someone lets me know that he's here. Said, Harris, why don't you go over and we'll give you five minutes with him. So I spoke to Arnie about the program and he said, look, I'm heading to the airport. Why don't you hop a ride with me and talk to me about the program? So I had about a half hour with him. He said, send me a note. And I said, look, I, I don't want money. What my dream would be, would be for the president to invite me and some of my board members and to invite a group of private sector individuals, wealthy individuals, to hear our story and get them excited about the program. He said, gotcha. About a month later, we get a call. We're calling from the secretary's office. We'd like to come down and spend some time at Angelo. A man of his word. Guy comes down, spends a whole day there. He says, it is the most amazing program I've ever seen. I'm going to share this with Secretary Duncan. Thank you. We're so excited. We're going to go to the White House. There could be hundreds of wealthy guys and gals, and we're going to tell them the story. Oh, my God. So I get a call like several months later. We got great news for you, Harris. I said, oh, my God. Secretary has agreed to give you a half million dollars a year for your program. What? A half million dollars a year for your program? But I, 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 I didn't ask for any money. Well, but he thinks you deserve it. I said, no. What do you mean, no? No. I just wanted him to invite us to give a presentation to other wealthy individuals. We don't, we, listen, you guys are like, back then, maybe 10 trillion in debt. You don't need to give me money. I'm fine. He said, so you don't want the money? I said, I, no. He said, I'll call you back. I'm still waiting. I, I, I close my eyes sometimes and I wonder what would America be like if every underserved community had a tangible part program. Oh my God. And what a story, my goodness, Harris Rosen putting his money where his mouth is and investing in a small part of a larger community and getting a seven to one return. And this, of course, is what we all know. And this is on us as private citizens. We can complain about government all day. But this stuff is possible with our own dollars. 
and a seven to one return. No, he's right. That's not your typical return. Harris Rosen's story. And by the way, if you have any net worth or capacity or know anyone in your neighborhood, you should be giving Mr. Rosen a call or visiting his hotel or visiting his neighborhood. And you know where you can find him. I'm sure you just have to jo- drop his name in that part of town and you'll find him. Harris Rosen's story, a true social entrepreneur and not just a business entrepreneur here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Steve Martin performing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. An actor, a writer, a producer, a musician, Steve Martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and later as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In the 70s, he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses. He's returned to doing stand-up and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking. Well, not too many people smoking out here tonight. That's pretty good. <laughs> kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, mind if I smoke? I always say, Oh, no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> it's one of my habits. Yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. But I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going, uh, gee, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important or you wouldn't have forgot it. Uh, <laughs> I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. <laughs> Shake. 
Okay. We're moving now, eh, folks? <laughs> yes, this is comedy. All right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. Now, the fun part of smoking is deciding what brand to smoke. Now, Virginia Slims, that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? <laughs> Oh, here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother. I'm so mad at my mother. I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. I said, hey, I work for a living. So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she calls me up and says she can't pay me back for a while. I said, what is this? So I worked it out with her. I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> and if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs> Oh, and every once in a while on Our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip we hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius read by Martin himself from his own audio book. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them which I'm sure came about because you finally realized that the audience is capable of murdering you. Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances, 
comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's get small and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo. Not a happy sound, it was just... You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. You just can't go, Oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you know. (laughs) He went on television right at the right time. Went, Hi, everything's great. I think it'd be great if you had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> then I'd go to foreign countries and I'd get off the plane and people would go, Hey, do Foggy Mountain. <laughs> now, the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work Instead of giving him money, we should give him a banjo. <laughs> and then go home and Did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter though. Oh, and we're cracking up here, and that's what we want to do. And we're going to be going back across the Pantheon. We're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies. And his Greenwich Village tapes some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse. Enjoy the music. Ladies love the sky. He ate a crocodile. 
He gave his life for tourism. <laughs> And this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Irvin Magic Johnson was born. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Now, to tell the story of Magic Johnson, one must include the story of Larry Bird. This is their story of love, friendship, and basketball. It all began in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the night of March 26, 1979. It was the NCAA championship, Indiana State versus Michigan State, a game that still ranks as the highest rated college final ever on television, a game that's now remembered as a prologue to a rivalry that transformed a sport and intertwined two legacies. Here's Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson just before the big game. It would be the first time these two would go head-to-head on a basketball court. This is probably the biggest game I'll ever play in my life, and I just feel like, you know, I'm representing not only myself, my team, but we're representing our school and our, and our town, Terre Haute. Well, it's uh, a dream come true, really, for me. Uh, I won the state title back in my home state, and then my next accomplishment was going to the NCAA and playing in uh, a game like tonight in the finals. They were two stars made to compete, but only one of them had been groomed for the spotlight. Born August 14, 1959, Irvin Johnson grew up in Lansing, a gritty industrial capital city of Michigan. He was one of Christine and Irvin Johnson Sr.'s 10 kids. Christine was a school custodian, while Irvin Sr. worked two jobs nearly around the clock. Here's Magic Johnson. My father, he got up early every morning, 6 o'clock or so, and uh, he went to work on his trash hauling truck every single day. Around noon, he would come home, catch a nap, and then he worked for General Motors for 30 years. And he won an award for never being late and never uh, missed a day. As a youngster, Irvin displayed his own strong work ethic on the blacktop. Here's Magic and his sister, Evelyn. I was out there all day long. Before we went to school, the bus leave at 7, 7.30. I was out there at 6, 6.30, working on my game. From a very young age, Irvin knew what he wanted to do. He had it all planned out. My dreams were to play in the NBA and become a businessman. Irvin was preparing to go to his neighborhood high school, a basketball powerhouse. They're predominantly black, Sexton High. But when Lansing began busing to desegregate its school system, Irvin's journey took an unexpected detour to the predominantly white Everett High School across town. My first day at Everett High School, 
was my first time I really had to understand there was a, a race problem. Nobody white would speak to anybody black, and nobody black would speak to anybody white. A lot of racial tension, a lot of fights, rioting. He kind of shrugged it off, and basically his attitude was, okay, well, I'll, I'll overcome this. Here's Irvin's high school basketball coach, George Fox. Whenever there was any racial problems, the principal would get Irvin and go talk to these kids. I can just see him with his big hands, calm down, just calm down. He'd break up fights. Talk with his friends, tell him, you know, let it go. You know, we can't fight about everything. Let's just chill. Let's play basketball. Irvin's talent was so great that soon after his varsity debut, a local reporter, dazzled by his exploits, gave the budding star a nickname. In the beginning, I thought it was foolish and dumb. You know, I didn't know nothing about a nickname. Then what happened was, you start saying, wait a minute, it fits my game. Hanging out with my boys on the street corners, we used to sing Temptation songs. They started saying, hey man, Magic, that's cool. And then people on the street start saying, hey Magic. And I said, hmm. <laughs> he bought into it and um, I think he felt he had to kind of live up to that name. And I must say that he did. He loved it. The more attention he got, you know, he just, he wanted attention from anybody he could get it from. Yeah, it does. Um, I really love the game, and uh, I just want to win. Gets it over and back, and he jams it through. Irvin Johnson. Irvin loved the dress. Nice Sandoval pants and overcoats with the, the fur around the collar. Always had to have his afro blown out. He had to look the part, play the part. Irvin was the first guy to have a posse. He not only had a posse of a lot of black kids, he had a lot of white kids and hanging around him. Some of my white friends were like, hey man, uh, we're having a kegger tonight, won't you come on by? And I said, what's a kegger? So he said, well, what it is, we get this big keg of beer and you just go for it. Okay. Well, what time does the, the kegger start? Because regular party time in our neighborhood is 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, the kegger starts at 7. I said, the party starts at 7 o'clock? I said, okay, man, I'm going to come to the kegger. We had a good time. The music was kind of bad, but we had a good time, you know. In his senior year, Magic did at Everett what he had planned to do at Sexton, win the state championship. And when it came to choosing a college, he decided to stay home in Lansing. Next year, I will be uh, attending Michigan State University. At MSU, Magic's star quickly went national. But at the top of the college game, he soon discovered a certain presence beside him. The first time I saw Larry Bird was actually in a magazine. I saw his stats blown away by his stats. But let's see if he can really do it against us. And that's always a mindset of black players if he's a great white player. In 1978, after his freshman year, the 18-year-old Magic would quickly find out when he and Bird were both chosen to play for Team USA in the World Invitational Tournament. 
Spectators had never seen their pass first, shoot later approach. It was refreshing and they quickly became crowd favorites. It, it was blowing my mind because he's dominating Jack Givens, player of the year in college basketball. Larry Bird is eating him alive. I couldn't wait to call home to tell my boys, man, this dude named Larry Bird is for real. This is the baddest white dude I've ever seen in my life. And when we come back, more on the story of Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Magic Johnson. And, of course, you've got to include Larry Bird when telling Magic Johnson's story. And, again, Magic Johnson was born on this day in history in 1959. We continue with the story. Here's Larry Bird. Well, I thought he was very good. There's no question about it. I, actually, I thought he was probably the best guard on the team. Irvin Johnson, look at that. Oh! We didn't get to play a lot, but you could tell. I think our first game was in Kentucky. We got about a 10, 12-point lead. And they put us in, went to 25, 30, just that fast. Fast break again, three on two, Griffith. Look at that steal by Larry Bird. Take us out, the lead go back down, put us back in. That's Bird and Johnson. The show started again. When you play with Magic, there's just something about it. You want to make that extra pass. You want to get that rebound and start to break. We came down a couple times. I go behind my back, no look to him. He no look back to me. And I'm laying it up. I'm saying, oh, man. Here's that last play. Magic Johnson going in, drops off the bird. Bird puts it back off inside to Johnson. Super bad. This guy got game. They had some wonderful moments on the court, but the two had no meaningful conversations. Such brevity was hardly strange coming from Larry Bird, who was not only one of college basketball's greatest players, but also its biggest enigma. Larry Bird grew up in southern Indiana in the tough working-class town of French Lick, population 2,000. Tiny and remote, it was one of the poorest places in the state. Arriving Pearl Harbor Day on December 7, 1956, Larry was the fourth of six kids born to Georgia and Joe Bird. Early on, he and his four older brothers earned a reputation around town. Here's older brother Mark and Larry. We were always considered troublemakers. We're either fighting amongst ourselves or there was always one of us fighting somebody. Larry was always one that kind of instigated things, you know. If I get my brother in a fight with somebody his age, I was happy as hell because I like to see him get beat up, and that's just the way it was. If, if I got in a, a scrape with some kid and my brothers didn't come to my side, they knew that when he got home, my dad was going to whip him. Larry and my dad were best of friends. They'd done everything together. When my dad would go out to my grandma's house, Larry would always go with him. They'd go fishing do a lot of things together. Larry's father battled his whole life against the demons caused by PTSD, which stemmed from a tour of duty in Korea. A talented craftsman, Joe Bird struggled to hold steady jobs. 
My mom sometimes worked late, and sometimes she had two jobs, but that's the way it was. I worked at school during my lunch hours, worked at the local grocery store, put up hay in the summer. I mean, if you wanted money, you had to get it on your own. To young Larry, actions spoke louder than words. He was very quiet, kind of hung to himself a little bit. I saw Larry take an F in an English class because he had to get up in front of his peers and give a speech. He said, I won't do it. But he just could not get up in front of his friends and talk. He was that shy. Of course, next thing you know, when he knew it was time for all of us together at the gymnasium, well, there he'd be. The minute he'd get a basketball in his hand, things were totally different. He was good enough for Indiana University's most revered and feared coach, Bobby Knight, to come calling late in his senior year. And since the birds didn't own a car, Larry's uncle tossed Bird's lone bag in the back seat of his Ford and drove 49 miles north to Bloomington to play ball for one of the best college teams in the land. Once I got to IU, it didn't take long to realize that I was out of my cocoon. Had over 30-some thousand students that I didn't have the funds. First week and a half, I thought, man, this ain't gonna work. After 24 days on campus, Bird packed up his duffel bag and hitchhiked back to French Lick. He did not tell anyone of his plans, not even Coach Knight. Letdown reverberated throughout the entire community. Let my mother down. She didn't talk to me for two months. But it didn't matter what other people said. To this day, I don't care. Back in French Lick, Bird went to work for the city. Meanwhile, that winter, his father's demons had taken him to an even darker place. Here's Jackie McMullen, author of the book on bird and magic, When the Game Was Ours. By this point, Joe and Georgia were divorced, and he was behind in his payments to the family. The police came by, and of course, they all knew him. So Joe said, hey, I need a few hours to get my affairs together before you take me away. So he called Georgia, and he said, you guys will be better off without me, and I'm going to take my life. And he put the phone down, and, and he killed himself shot himself. Here again is Mark Bird and Larry's high school coach, Jim Jones. When Dad passed, you know, it hurt Larry. I mean, that was his best friend. It's gone now. And, but Larry didn't show it a lot. He just didn't say much. You know, he just kind of held it within. I never, I never heard him speak out about it at all. Here's Larry. I was mad when I heard about it, and I was madder after the funeral because I thought he sort of cut out on us during a tough time. But you know, he went he went through a lot in his life. He did what he had to do. Here again is Jackie McMullen. If Bill Hodges hadn't been as persistent as he had been, Larry Bird might never have existed in any of our minds. I believe that with all my heart. I really do. It was Bill Hodges, the persistent young assistant coach from Indiana State University, who convinced Bird to give college hoops another shot. So with the promise to his mom to graduate, Bird headed to ISU, a school that never so much had been to the NCAA tournament. This fact did not phase Larry Bird. Once I started playing, it's the same old thing. You know, he's at a small school and he ain't playing against anybody, <clears throat> which is fine. Still dominated. 
by the time he had led Tiny ISU as a senior to a 33-0 record and a spot in the 79 title game, Larry Bird had become, alongside Magic Johnson, the talk of college basketball. The day before playing in the most widely anticipated college title game ever, Magic couldn't wait to greet his old playmate. Here's Magic. Indiana State was on practicing, and we were waiting in the tunnel. We got there early. I wanted to definitely say hello to Larry, you know. When they came through, it was like nobody was saying nothing. I wanted to go toward him, like his guys, like, made sure that he didn't say nothing. And then they kind of started snickering, like, Michigan State, you in trouble. We're going to kill you guys tomorrow. I probably did snub him. I don't remember it, but I'm, I'm sure I did. I didn't want any, you know, like I call it love fest, hugging and, and, and slapping high fives with opponent. You're there for a reason. You're there to win a game. That just said it's on now. Heading into the tournament, Magic was the bigger star. But by tip-off, it was Bird, having hardly missed a shot in the semifinal, who had become the focus for the fans and, more importantly, Michigan State. We actually had two men on Larry everywhere he went. Look at the pressure around him. Two, three, men. And he's short. I didn't play well at all. Biggest game of my life, I didn't play well. Toughest loss I ever took. I, I knew it was going to haunt him forever because we were going to see each other a lot. The National Basketball Association in its 33rd season is troubled by diminishing crowds and declining television ratings, signs that fan interest may be waning. College basketball was flourishing at the end of the 1970s, but after the golden era of Bill Russell and Jerry West in the 1960s, the pro game was crumbling. But on a balmy afternoon in June, while Larry Bird was playing golf in Santa Claus, Indiana with his longtime friend, Max Gibson, a stranger hollered to them, Larry Bird, you've just been drafted by the Boston Celtics. What does that mean? Bird asked. Hell, I don't know, he said. Indiana State's season had just ended in heartbreak in Salt Lake City at the hands of Michigan State, and the Celtics made a pitch to sign Bird for the final eight games of their season. The young forward opted instead to teach flag football, baseball, badminton, and dodgeball at the local Indiana high school. His duties also included teaching mentally disabled children, a CPR course, and a driver's education course. It was an unbelievable experience, Bird said. And when we come back, we continue with the life of Irvin Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And more on Irving Magic Johnson after these messages. And we continue with the story 
of Irvin Magic Johnson, who was born on this day in history in 1959. Let's continue where we last left off. One evening that summer, Bird was playing baseball and positioned in left field when a hard rolling ball smashed his finger and bent it backward. I looked down, Bird said, and my finger was all the way over on the other side of my hand. Bird had to have surgery. How long is it going to take before it's healed? Bird asked the surgeon. Son, I'm not sure it will. He was right. Today, Bird concedes, I never could shoot as well again. Bird finished his senior year at Indiana State, and then in the spring of 1979, the NBA's sixth selected draft pick arrived with great hopes for the city of Boston. Here's Walter Cronkite. There's hope he can help solve professional basketball's difficulties, which some say are compounded by a question of black and white. The great white hope. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's very hard to say because there's a lot of great white players around, and, and I just hope that I can just fit in as well as some of them that has fit in. You know, the, the great players are the black players, and they're the best. Such regard meant little to black Celtics. Guys like Cedric Maxwell, who looked at Bird and saw not the great white hope, but another case of great white hype. I think that you would say that most black players at the time were racist in, in the sense that we did not think that you could find a, a white guy who could play better than any black guy. When I walk in the first day of camp, them guys were on the floor stretching and here comes the white savior, here comes this, here comes that. I sort of enjoyed it because I knew I was going to battle them all day. But Curtis and Sidney didn't last long. They didn't make it through the first practice. And they were cut. So then it was just Cedric. I'm thinking, oh, he's slow. He can't get off a shot. He's not that strong. This is going to be a layup. Bam. Knocks down a jump shot. Okay. Maybe that was luck. Gets the ball again. Bam. Knocks down another jump shot. Now I'm thinking like, okay, hey. You know what? I'm going to D this guy up. I'm going to show him what it's like. 20 feet away. Bam. 25 feet away. Bam. <laughs> I, my mind just goes so good. Damn, this white guy can play. <laughs> it was a good thing, too. The storied Celtics might have been the winningest team in NBA history, but they were fresh off their worst season in 30 years. And in Bird, they not only had a player who was supremely talented, but tough enough to take on any challenge. Larry Bird plays it to the hilt, baby. Talent, toughness, and confidence aside, Boston also liked winners. And when Bird led the Celtics to the NBA championship in just his second season, he was finally one of those two. And Larry Bird is right in the middle. He's the eye of the hurricane, known as the Boston Celtics. Boston loved Larry Bird. It just wasn't so clear at first how much Bird loved the city back. Here's Bird speaking at the city parade celebrating their NBA championship. There's only one place I'd rather be, French Lick. Thank you. He proudly dubbed himself the Hick from French Lick, and he looked every bit the part. But those who played him for simple did so at their own peril. One of the great ways, I think, of winding up with no money in your pocket is to think Larry Bird is dumb. Syntax is not intelligence. Unlettered is not stupid. He did, however, allow the public one small indulgence. You could come out on Saturday and watch him mow his lawn. Huge crowds started to stop. 
Larry Bird's cutting grass in front of his house. He's mowing his lawn in the springtime. Larry is about doing things himself. And I think it's one of the things that made him so beloved in Boston. But as Bird navigated through his new world, he still had one eye fixed on a familiar foe in a faraway land. It is now exactly 12 noon. The draft is officially open. The first pick, the Los Angeles Lakers select Urban Magic Johnson, Michigan State, 6'8", 200 pounds. In the stoic Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Lakers had talent, but what they were lacking in was energy. Irvin Magic Johnson was only too happy to provide it. Here's Brian Gumbel. Lit the place up. Changed the franchise, changed the temperament. I changed it from the very first game. Here it was, the first game of a long season against the lowly Clippers. And Magic was embracing Kareem as if they'd just won their 10th straight championship. It was like, man, this is a different kind of dude. Here's Magic's close friend, Arsenio Hall. From the day he arrived, he became the prince of the city. He reminded me of a guy who wakes up without an alarm clock. And that's what I used to always say. I want to be happy enough to wake up without an alarm clock because I want to go into my world. Here's former Lakers head coach Pat Riley. He had it, what it is. As far as I was concerned, the it was not his ability or his size. The it was his attitude, was his leadership, was his mind. In his rookie season, Magic led the Lakers to the 1980 NBA championship. But what Bird couldn't possibly have known was that he had inspired Magic's performance when he was named Rookie of the Year that same day. Here again is Jackie McMullen. The PR person from the Lakers says, hey, Irvin, the Rookie of the Year voting has come out. And Magic says, okay, well, who won? He said, well, Larry Bird won. And Magic says, well, was it close? And he said, oh, no. Bird won the award by a 63-3 margin. Magic received the remaining three votes. Bird won the title the next year, and soon after that, black kids began showing up at the playground wearing Bird's number 33 jersey. Magic was surprised the first time he saw it, especially because it was on the blacktop in Los Angeles. Bird also had a close eye on Magic. I'd get up in the mornings and see what he did because their games came on late. Then you look at the box score. I had to have him there for some reason. Like a crutch. Somebody I can compare myself to. I hated what was being said, that Larry was better than me, and I'm just a guy who can control the game. My first four or five years, that bothered me a lot. I didn't tell nobody it bothered me, but it did. Their competitive dislike emerged from a greater truth, that on the court, they were two of a kind. Basketball prodigies who fused the substance of the 60s with the style of the 70s to create a new and exciting, yet selfless way to play the game in the 1980s. But with continued low television ratings and tape-delayed finals, the NBA was struggling to get the word out. After the NBA signed a new TV deal with CBS before the 82-83 season, the rescue plan was simple. Sell more magic and bird. Here again is McMullen and Ted Shaker, former executive for CBS Sports. 
You got this slick Showtime African-American guy out west, and you got the lunch bucket, floppy-haired white guy with the bruises all over his body. It's central casting. It's perfect. I mean, this was like made in heaven. In 1979, this idea of magic and bird was created. And so that was sort of a no-brainer. We'd have a doubleheader. It would be the Celtics playing first and the Lakers playing second. And that's the way we did it. In 1984, when the Celtics and the Lakers both reached the finals just a year into the TV deal, the superstar investment was about to pay off. It came down to Game 7. It was like college in 1979 for Magic and Bird. Magic and the Lakers flew into Boston for Game 7. The plane pull in, like the whole airport just stopped and turned and just stared at us and guys running up. Magic, Larry's gonna kill you. Larry's gonna kill you. And so just looking and everybody, yeah, Bird's gonna kill you, Magic. And when we come back, more on the life of Irvin Magic Johnson and of course, Larry Bird and storytelling doesn't get better than this. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Irvin Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. And one can't talk about Magic Johnson without talking about Larry Bird. This is one of the great love stories in American sports. The American people love this rivalry, and these two rivals, well, they ended up, well, ended up loving each other. Let's return to the story. Game 7 of the 84 series was the highest rated game the NBA had ever produced. But Magic was not rejoicing. The Boston Celtics are the NBA world champions. Well, it was a big deal. I remember asking Quinn Buckner about it afterwards. They had a celebration in downtown Boston after they won the championship. And, you know, it was unusual for Larry to have these little outbursts, as Quinn would call them. But, you know, about 11.30 at night, finally he turned to Quinn, he goes, I got him. I finally got him. And he was talking about magic. The two teams met again in the NBA Finals the following season. But in the 1985 Finals, magic flipped the script, winning the clinching game at the Boston Garden. But the significance of their rivalry and their relationship was about to change. Converse had convinced Magic and Bird to shoot a sneaker commercial in the summer of 1985. You crazy. <laughs> I said, you crazy. I'm not shooting a commercial with Larry. So I said, okay, what, we're going to shoot it in L.A.? I would never went to L.A. to film it. Well, where are we going to shoot it? You want to shoot a commercial? Come to my house. 
was like, oh no. One stoplight. And I thought Lansing was small. I think the plan was, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm trying to get up out of here. My plan was that. The ad was to be shot at the home Bird built for his mom just outside French Lick, Indiana. It featured a full-length basketball court, the day's first shooting location. So they say, okay, you're playing one-on-one, and I'm looking at Larry, and he's looking at me like, is this real? Are we playing, playing? Because, you know, this is, this is magic and bird. I could just hear Larry, you know, starting in on, well, you bring it to the basket, I'm going to send it 30 rows up. So the guy was like, no, no, not like that. A fun game. We were both like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> like you can see this relief coming over both of our faces. We sat down next to each other. How was your summer? Oh, it's going good. How was yours? It's going great. I said, man, it's a nice spread you got. He's asked me, is this where you play? I said, yeah, I play here. If it's not windy, if it's raining or windy, I go to the gym. But this is where I do all my work. I see that tractor. You work on the, on the tractor? He said, man, I work on this tractor every day. Larry Bird work on the tractor? He said, yeah. It's just them two walking and talking. And every once in a while, they'd stop, and one of them would say something, and then they'd start laughing. Then they said, okay, break, it's lunch break time. I was going to my trailer. He said, no, my mother has prepared lunch for us up at the house. We went up to the house and we sat down there and we talked and my mom, my brothers, thought the world of him. His mother was so nice, making sure I had enough to eat. I just saw my mother. It was crazy. He charmed her, he said, but that's magic. He makes everybody feel welcome and warm, and he's a con man. <laughs> By the dawn of the 90s, Magic won five titles, played in eight finals, and equaled Bird's MVP tally of three. The Prince of L.A. was now the king, and in Hollywood, being royalty has its perks. For Magic, his favorite perk was women. But things were not the same back in Boston, Larry Bird was taking care of a nasty back injury that occurred in 1985 while single-handedly building his mother's driveway back in French Lick. But after two ruptured Achilles tendons and surgery on his back in 1991, Bird kept going to work. You know, I probably should have retired in 88, 89, but uh, it's that competition. Maybe one more chance, maybe Magic get together in the finals. But it never happened. And then Magic received a phone call. I'm sleeping, really, laying down, just waiting on the game. And uh, the phone rings. And uh, the voice says, hey, you got to uh, come back to L.A. And uh, I said, OK, why? Well, I can't tell you until you get to L.A. So. I said, okay. Dr. Melman starts to tell me that, you know, uh, through the physical that I took, that um, they discovered that I had HIV. Oh, it was everything. 
How is it possible? What happened? How did it happen to me? And my mind is racing, you know, and uh, and then you just you just devastated. The first person I thought of was Larry. I wonder what Larry thinks. The day that I heard about magic, it just sort of changed my love for basketball. It shook me up. You know, you get, a, you get that feeling, probably the same type of feeling I had when my father died. Calls me and uh, we're talking. You know, it's just, how you doing? I heard about it. And uh, you can almost hear both of us with some uh, tears in our eyes. And I'm choked up because he did call me and uh, you know when something happens to you And then you find out who really your friends are and people who really care about you. Um, you figure all those battles, all those things we had to go through as warriors, as competitors, and as men. And um, here this man says, hey, you know what, man, you're okay. And so um, that was the greatest moment for me, too, you know, to have him check on me and, and to make sure I was okay. Magic retired immediately, and Bird's 91 92 season was his last in the NBA. To his delight, Magic was invited to play in the 1992 NBA All Star game. He stole the show and won MVP honors. But that was just a warm-up for the encore Magic had up his sleeve. Here's Larry Bird. He's not done yet because we're going to go to Barcelona and bring back the gold for everyone here in the United States. For the first time ever, NBA players would be competing in the Olympics on the first dream team with the likes of Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. The irony was that Magic felt incredible but Bird, with his bad back, could hardly move. But you know what? Didn't matter. We were still together. You know, didn't matter. Hold me close and hold me fast. And when he got his opportunity, he switched a few. When I got my opportunity, I still was magic. Today, decades removed from the height of their rivalry, their bond endures. Two impossibly different men with a connection only they can fully grasp. I always, I always get this good feeling when I know I'm going to see him because uh, he makes you feel good. You know, he really does. <laughs> he's unbelievable. He's very private, but if he's your friend, man, you got a friend for life. And Larry Bird is a straight shooter. He'll tell you when he don't like you. 
That's one thing I wish I could have from him, that, that he has that I don't have. I wish I had that. I mean, he walked in here, this whole room would change, and uh, maybe that's what I always wanted to be, but I just couldn't. And there you have it. What a story. The story of Irvin Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. But of course, the story of an epic friendship, an epic rivalry, and two men who changed the sport. Before 1979, basketball was in trouble, and these guys resuscitated a dying sport. And by the way, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And please go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for one of their free and terrific online courses. They teach the things that should be taught. They teach the things that aren't being taught in so many of our schools, from American history to philosophy to art. It's all there. Their C.S. Lewis course is terrific. It's free, and it's available to all of you who are listening. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. On this day in history, Irvin Magic Johnson was born in 1959.